If you have a Bible or if you have it on your technology, please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 21 through 34. Last week we listened to and considered the implications of Jesus' first spoken words in the Gospel of Mark. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In God's perfect timing, the kingdom rule of God was now in their midst in the presence and work of Jesus, the God-man. To accept this good news takes, as I demonstrated last week with the football, both, if you remember, reception and direction. Reception and direction, repentance and belief, a willingness to embrace Jesus, not just by admiring him, not even just by acknowledging or, or agreeing with him, but by moving with him in faith, relationally following his lordship through obedience, direction, mission. And in this, Jesus said that he will transform our identities. He'll make us what he called those early disciples, fishers of men. Mark 1, uh, we see these newly called disciples move, as we looked at last week, without delay. Without delay. At once. They shift their priorities, even at great personal sacrifice, and follow Jesus. This week we'll see Mark showing us that Jesus displayed a powerful authority. A powerful authority. An authority that has never been seen before displayed in a man. So what exactly is authority? Any thoughts? What is authority? Leadership? Okay. Authority is commissioned. Like when Jesus said, go out, he was given authority, but that was a commission. Okay. Position of dominion. Good. Anything else? I'm sorry? All right. Power over something. Responsibility. With great authority comes great responsibility. Yeah, so there, there's some different ways that we use the word authority. Um, if someone has a profound knowledge or experience in, in a specific area, we might say that they're an authority on the subject. 
In other words, that if they, if they say something on that subject and they have great expertise, what they say is trustworthy, is reliable, they're an authority on the subject. But authority generally has to do with, with what you're saying, with, with power, with rule, with influence. Um, a person of authority is someone that has taken or earned or been given the right to command or enforce rule. Um, we think of that even in our own culture. There might be bosses. There might be uh, a police officer that, you know, they're given the authority to enforce rule. Uh, so Jesus has become preaching the kingdom rule of God. And he's saying the kingdom rule of God is at hand. It's here. It's present. And now we can say that the outworking of this kingdom rule is displayed in his inherent authority. His rule, his power, his influence, his right to command and enforce his rule. So let's just begin with the first two verses here. Uh, Mark 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 21 and verse 22. It says, they, so now this is Jesus and his disciples moving together, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So our, our context is Jesus still in Galilee. He, he goes to Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is the family, where, where the family home of Peter, uh, where Peter resides, his brother Andrew, his wife, his mother-in-law. It kind of becomes a home base for Jesus while he's ministering in this region. And he goes to the synagogue, a place of, uh, lo where the local, a local Jewish congregation would gather weekly for prayer and for worship and for teaching. On the Jewish Sabbath, a day set aside in the Old Testament Mosaic law for rest. And, and in these synagogues, in these local communities, these local Jewish synagogues, if a visitor, visiting teacher came, he would be invited to speak. This actually, there's still places in the world that, that do this. If you go to, especially a lot of like third world settings, if you go and you're known to be a teacher, a pastor, they will, the pastor will just automatically give up the pulpit. Like it's actually, I've, I've, that's happened to me a few times in Haiti. It's uncomfortable. They're almost insistent that you preach, that you teach. And so here Jesus is apparently invited to do that and he begins to teach. And what's interesting, it's very Mark-like. Um, he doesn't tell us what Jesus taught on that Saturday in Capernaum. He tells us of the response of the people. He says that the people were amazed at his teaching. Jesus taught and the people were astounded 
You get the sense that they were, that they were uh, enthralled, that their eyes were fixed, that their mouths were agape, that they were at the edge of their seats kind of in awe and wonder. Who is this guy? But what amazed them about his teaching? What was it? Right, it says, it says that what amazed them is that he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus' teaching had a weight and a power to it that was oceans apart from what they were used to hearing. Now, in, in that time, in that culture, um, a religious teacher would most often not speak of their own accord. They would all be attached to some rabbi's teaching, some well-known and respected rabbi. And what they would do is they would get up and there would be a scripture read that morning and they would expound on that scripture. But by doing so, they would say, this is what rabbi so-and-so believes that this scripture means and how it's interpreted and how it applies. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't refer to any rabbi so-and-so. He doesn't need to. <laughs> he uses his own wisdom, his own insight. He is God the Son. He is moving in Holy Spirit power. He was his own source. And whatever the presentation, whatever the content, the people were stunned. They'd never heard teaching, Abby, like that before. It's interesting, as I read this week, um, I read through a lot of different stuff when I'm going to be speaking on a passage. And... Um, I'm really enjoying this one author, David Garland, and he writes, this, he wrote this little line when, when I was going through this section of the passage, and he said, Judaism had become a book religion. That was really interesting. Judaism had become a book religion. And I wondered, how much of 20, 21st century Christianity has become a book religion. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I believe that, I mean, I, I dedicate a lot of my life to the fact that I believe the Bible is God's word. I, I believe, as our statement of faith reads, that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it is the only infallible guide for faith and practice. I believe that. With all my heart. I believe that the Bible shows us who God is. I believe that the Bible uh, teaches us and, un and unveils like a flower opening God's great plan of salvation. I believe that, that through the Bible, God teaches and he instructs and he corrects and he exhorts and he encourages and he counsels. He strengthens and builds up the body of Christ, his church. I believe that it must be fed on regularly. That we should just be swimming in it every day. 
meditating on it, memorizing it. I believe it should be lived out. But I also believe that if the Bible is divorced from the heart of God and divorced from the Spirit of God, then Christianity can devolve into a book religion. Right? Divorce this from God's heart. Divorce it from the Holy Spirit. And a lot of damage has been done. Instead of being life-giving, it's been life-what-taking. The Jewish rabbis of, of that day um, loved to debate their various rabbinical interpretations, kind of like the Greeks loved to debate philosophy. And they loved to attempt to enforce their interpretations through rules and legalisms. Much like many Christians today love to debate every little minutia of fine doctrine and apply their own forms of legalisms to their interpretations. You ever get tired of that? <laughs> but when Jesus teaches, see, that's what they were used to. Rabbi so-and-so says this. No, Rabbi so-and-so says that. And let's argue and let's squabble. And I'm with him and I'm with him. And you got your doctrine wrong. And no, no, you got your doctrine wrong. And it all becomes a book religion. And Jesus enters in and starts to teach. And all of a sudden, God's word comes to life. They're thunderstruck. And he speaks with this divine authority that reaches their mind and not just their mind, their hearts. And it's not just about what they're doing on the outside, but it's about God changing them from the inside out, transforming their hearts, so then it transforms their lives. Ours is not to be a dead book religion, but rather in the authority of Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God's word is to be, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's to be living and active. It's to cut through dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus says, and this is still true, he says in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man is the one that builds his house on a firm rock, on a foundation. And what that foundation represents is, is his teaching, listening to it and putting it into practice. He's like, you're a fool if you hear my teaching and don't put it into practice, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms come, it's total destruction. A wise man hears my word and puts it into practice. He says at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, right, that his disciples are, are to obey his teaching, everything that he taught, everything that he commanded. Jesus is still our authoritative teacher, as Abiyar has already said this morning. 
All of God's word is meant to lead us to being his disciples, his life students. Jesus challenged the the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 5. He says, you diligently study. And and the, the, the phraseology there means that they're constantly doing it. They're constantly engaging it. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you will possess eternal life. But he says, these scriptures, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The scriptures are to direct us to Jesus. To Jesus. He's an authoritative teacher. He still is. Verses 23 through 28. Just then, just then, that's what Mark loves, suddenly, this is his, again, same word, suddenly, immediately, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So you see here that church interruptions are not a modern day phenomenon. <laughs> Say, oh, the technology won't work. <laughs> That's not a big deal compared to what's going on here, you know. Oh, the video's not playing right. Oh, baby's crying. It's okay. Really, it's okay. Here's a church interruption, right? This man gets up. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Imagine that happening in the church, right? You got a preacher preaching and all of a sudden someone gets up screaming. Jesus is interrupted, not by the man, but by the demon who is possessing this troubled man. As a demon, it also can be translated an unclean spirit. It's possibly understood, but not certainly understood, as an angel that had fallen with Satan, rebelled against God, now cast to the earth, give it a limited reign with Satan, but knowing that his time is short, awaiting God's final judgment, This demon interrupts the powerful, powerful teaching of Jesus. So he thought. The forces of Satan will always try to interrupt, right? That's what they do. Let me, something good is happening. Something beautiful is happening. God's word is not only being taught, but it's being lived out in the authority of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Forces of evil will look to interrupt, will look to disrupt, will look to divide. And we see here that even our places of worship are not exempt, right? This happened in a synagogue. I wonder how long was this guy coming? The words of the demon are striking. He's concerned about what the presence of Jesus means. Because he knows for him and his kind, I almost hate to say him, for it and its kind, there is a line. (laughs) There is a judgment. There is a destruction. So he, he asks, or he says, why have you come? Are you here to destroy us? Is now the time? But unlike all the humans in the room who see this young man, this maybe 30, 31-year-old guy up in front of them, this traveling rabbi, unlike all the humans, the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth, humanly speaking, for sure, the Son of Man. But he also knows that voice. He knows that authority from ages past. And I don't know if he had been coming for weeks, months, years. All of a sudden, Jesus, I don't know how many scribes he listened to, how many teachers of the law he listened to, how, much, how many prayers he sat under, but that voice... And that authority speaks, and he gets up screaming. I tell you, how scared are you? How scared of you are, are you of the dark, right? How scared are you of evil? Boy, our, even today, our movies still paint demons and demonic forces, and like there's nothing scarier. They can do whatever they want. They can terrorize people. They can torment people. But I tell you what, Jesus stands in the midst. And who's scared now? Who's scared now? What do you want with us? You're going to destroy us? And then he says in terror, I know who you are. Just visualize the scene. Visualize the scene. You're the Holy One of God. Makes my heart go a little faster. Now, some, some believe the demon was kind of making this futile attempt to get the upper hand by revealing Jesus' divine identity, and Jesus will have none of it. The New International Version's be quiet doesn't quite give the force of Jesus' words. Really, though, again, I know mom and dad say, don't say this, it's rude. It's really more like, shut up. That's the force of Jesus' words. Oh, what are you going to do with us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Shut up. Who's afraid now? It's, it's this, in the Greek, it's, it's this to gag or to muzzle, to force silence. 
In verse 34 that we'll read in a minute here, as Jesus expels many more demons, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jesus knew he was going to be a very different Messiah than the people expected. He knew that. So he was going to unveil his identity in his time and his way. And the reality is, is that it would lead him to the cross and ultimately out of the grave. And no one would fully get it until that point. And he's not going to take the witness of some evil, unclean spirit in the process. And so here Jesus... He doesn't call upon, he's not like some sorcerer that that gives some incantation. He doesn't even stop to pray. In his own innate authority, he speaks. Shut up. Come out of him. And then like a defiant child taking a temper tantrum, the demon gives a man one last shake and shout, but he does what he's told. That's Jesus. That's my Jesus. The demons are afraid of him. Uh, our, Our modern Western minds like to explain away all spiritual forces, right? Keith Green, the old, good old Keith Green, he He's saying from a song from Satan's perspective. He says, it's getting, getting pretty easy now, right? Because no one, what, believes in me anymore. Of course, I do believe doing the opposite, thinking there's a demon around every corner, a demon under every rock. Not looking at ourselves, not looking at <laughs> our, our own failings and blaming everything on some demons. I mean, that's... That can be an unhealthy perspective as well. But with that said, it's very clear in the Bible that there is a spiritual war going on beyond our vision. There's an ongoing battle. But as, again, David Garland writes, he says, Jesus comes with the authority of God to dismantle the tyranny of Satan. to dismantle the tyranny of Satan. This man was powerless before Jesus came. And the people are left stunned again. In this word, you get this mix of this sense of awe and fear. Now, I would not suggest by any means that everybody's possessed by a demon, although I do believe in the spiritual, as I mentioned, and... But I would suggest to you that we all need to be set free. Don't we? Don't we all need freedom? Don't we all long to be free from the sin that so easily entangles? Don't we all long for the freedom from pride and insecurity and lust and anger and bitterness and fear and loneliness and addiction? I still believe this, that Jesus is the one that frees us. That Jesus is the one that takes these chains. You know what's scary as I'm standing here? This is hurting my back, but I'm getting used to it. 
I'm like, it's bothering me. It's hurting me. But I'm like getting used to it. We get used to our chains, don't we? We just get, oh, I just carry them along. I'm like Marley, you know. I just keep carrying and I, I make it chain by chain, link by link. And we don't even hardly know it's there until Jesus comes along and says, hey, let me take that thing from you. Oh, man, it's starting to feel good already. What chains are you carrying today? What, what? Jesus is like, you don't have to carry this chain. Yeah, I can free you from this. I can free you from your fear. I can free you from your bondage. We all need to be set free. Isn't that the good news? Jesus said, Jesus said, this is out of Luke chapter 4, and this is, this is a prophecy that's written about Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, because he has come, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the good news, man. I don't need to be carrying my chains around anymore. Jesus is like, shut up. Come out of him. <laughs> Lastly, verses 29 through 34. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon. That's Peter and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So the next place we get as, as Mark is, is unfolding this picture of Jesus' authority is against sickness. And Peter's mother-in-law is burning up. It's actually a pretty, pretty common scene. We've all known this. Many of us have experienced this. She's burning up with fever in bed. And... and the guys are like, hey, I saw what Jesus did in the synagogue. Hey, by the way, we're going to Peter's house and Andrew's house. Um, Peter's mother-in-law is burning up. They go to Jesus. Maybe he's the guy we need to start asking first. And Jesus goes, and again, this is probably a word right from Peter, this story. It's a very private scene. And, and Jesus, it's so beautiful. Like, again, very Marcus. He, he doesn't give us any words. There's no words recorded. All he does is act. And this lady who's burning up, he just takes her by the hand. And at his touch, sickness flees. At his touch, gone. Isn't it great to know the Lord has that kind of compassion on us in our momentary trials and pain? And then what does she do? What, is, what does mom do, mother-in-law do? What's that? Yeah, she, <laughs> she just starts serving. 
She's like, oh, I'm feeling better, you know, time to... But I just think it's a beautiful picture. I mean, she was doing what we all should do. Because whether I'm healed in body or mind or spirit, I'm healed unto my new identity. A son of God, a servant of God. I'm made to serve God. I'm healed unto service. And that's often displayed on how that works out in love with one another. Healed unto service. Not just healed for myself, that's beautiful, but healed so that healing can ripple into the lives of others. And then the Sabbath ends at sundown that day. Um, and people are free according to their law to go about their work. So, so the whole town uh, starts carrying their sick, both physical and spiritual, over to Peter's house. Any hypochondriacs here? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. So, um, you know, so, so basically there's this virtual hospital. Can you imagine? They're eating dinner and, and Peter's mother-in-law serving. And yay, Peter, you know, she, she's feeling better. Praise God. And then they heart, hear, start hearing <laughs> some coughing and hacking. And what is that? And, and they just look out and on the road, people are just carrying their friends and, and just bringing them to the Lord. And we get this scene of like this virtual hospital outside of Peter's door, coughing and hacking and, you know, moaning. And what does Jesus do? He just goes among the crowd one by one. Oh, Frank. Oh, Jody. Oh, Bob. Oh, Fran. Oh, oh Norlene. I, I, I feel your pain. I know where you're at. He speaks. He touches. He casts out demons. He heals. And there's wholeness. What an amazing scene. Now, does God still heal today? Yeah, I mean, some say no. I, I, don't, I haven't found any reason to think otherwise. He's, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says that we should be praying for one another's healing, even physical. And whenever God decides to, according to his will, his mercy, his plan, he'll demonstrate his power and his glory. He still does it. I don't think, though, I don't think the point here is that we're to expect a constant flow of the healing of the mortal body. Um, God intervenes. I've seen God intervene. But I've also seen him not. And there's plenty here that he hasn't intervened to heal your physical body. Um, and that may include even sometimes mental troubles, um, emotional troubles. But that shouldn't cause our faith to falter. Nor need we get obsessed with the healing of the mortal body. For all the healing of the mortal body that God does permit, and here's a miracle in and of itself, and not to... God has made your body to continue to try and heal, 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 heal. So whether it be natural, whether it be medical, or whether it be straight out miraculous, all the healing of the mortal body is temporary, right? But it points us to the coming permanent healing of the resurrection to our bodies unto immortality. Does God heal? Absolutely. Will he show his mercy here and here and here? He may say yes. He may say not now. He may say it's not my will. I, I don't know the mind of God. 
I know that I will always pray in faith and that I always want to trust his will and his goodness. But all of that, what goes on with a mortal body, is pointing to the greater healing. I believe the point is, is that when Jesus looks at sickness and Jesus looks at disease and Jesus looks at death and Jesus looks at the sin that has brought all of that into our world and existence, that sickness, that disease, that death, that sin has met its match. Has met its match. Everyone who believes in the Lord can be set free right now. Chains loosed. Right now. And all Christians look forward to the complete physical healing one day. That day of resurrection. That our bodies will be made completely whole. Living with God in immortality forever. And in that, the chains of fear of death are loosed. If the Lord doesn't come back, there's going to be a day that this body dies. And I don't know what it's going to be. An accident, sickness. And I may petition the Lord, Lord, take this from me. He may. He may give me more years. He may not. But ultimately, there's no fear in death with Jesus Christ. He is our healer. A quick note here, and I'm going to wrap up. Jesus shows in this ministry, I think, very early on, that his ministry is one that reaches out and touches the untouchables. Right? All the people that, especially in that culture, unclean, 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 go away. You're, 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 you're stricken by God. And Jesus goes out and starts to touch those people. And I think that as Jesus' disciples, he is always our model. And we have to be thinking about in our culture, who are the untouchables? Who are those that our, our culture is saying weak, unclean, undesirable, dispensable, garbage, trash? And Jesus would send us to those people and say, guess what? The kingdom of God is made up of people just like you. What the world wants to call the least of these. And so Mark shows that Jesus is the one who has authority. Authority to teach us in our walk with God and with one another. Authority over the forces of evil. Authority over all that ails us. Authority to set the captive free. And I just thought, you know, authorities. Not always a word that makes us have warm, and fu warm fuzzies. But when I think of it like that, authority to set me free. I said, boy, that's the kind of authority I want in my life. Let's pray. So, Father God, as we hear Mark lay out these pictures of your beautiful authority... Jesus, I pray that we submit. Father God, I pray for any who are carrying chains and burdens that hurt and hurt and hurt, but they've just gotten used to.
Lord, may even this morning there be freedom, a release of the captives, a setting free, a breaking of those chains. Lord, may we come into your beautiful lordship and trust you that you are the one that shows us the way, that ministers to our mind and our heart, that says we have nothing to fear from evil when we are with you, and that you will be the healer of our soul and ultimately our eternal bodies. In these things, may we have great faith that you are on our side. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.